I'm reading this morning in the book of Mark, chapter 12, beginning at verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living You are quite wrong. Thanks, Terry. Good morning. Ray Sedman wrote some time ago, A few years ago I was in England preaching in some churches in the London area. I spoke one night in a crowded Methodist chapel where many were singing the chorus, Our God Reigns. I was amused to see in the song sheet from which the congregation was singing that the typist had made an error in the title of the hymn, and it read, Our God resigns. (laughs) He goes on to say, Many Christians act as if God has resigned. (laughs) What's he mean? Well, I think what he's getting at is that many in America today are what some have called practical atheists. God may have been directly involved in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Peter and Paul doing amazing things, but he's not really involved in my life on a day-to-day basis. Essentially, he's resigned. (laughs) Life really depends then on my choices, on my decisions, how I choose to do. God has given us principles to live by, but he's basically pulled his hand away and it's up to us to live out this life. He's not truly present in my life. In other words, many of us are theologically orthodox. We have right beliefs, but practically we live as atheists, as if God was not active in our daily lives. These are the kind of people that Jesus is dealing with in our passage today. Since he came to Jerusalem this last week of his life, he's had many confrontations. He's faced off against the chief priests and the scribes, the high priests, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Herodians. (laughs) And now 
He's facing off against the Sadducees. Each of these groups has their own twisted slant on who God is and who he should be. And so now as he faces the Sadducees, he's facing the practical atheists of the day. They were theologically orthodox, but not really believing that God was actively involved in their daily lives. And they are perhaps the closest of all these groups to Americans today. Like them, we tend to have a belief in God, but don't really believe he's actively involved in every moment of my life. And as Jesus says, when we live that way, we're wandering away, as we'll see in the passage. And we're missing out on the power of God in our daily lives. Pray with me. Lord, as Paul described in the book of Philippians, he said he presses on that he may know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Lord, we admit it's easy to Forget your power and not live in light of your power, the power of your resurrection. So today, Lord, reveal your power, reveal yourself to us by the power of your spirit, that we might live in light of that power and in light of the resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So who are these Sadducees? Some Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to Jesus, as someone reminded me between services They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were so sad, you see. (laughs) They were the wealthy ruling class, the one percenters, so to speak. They had priestly roots. The high priest was the Sadducee. They only embraced the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch from Genesis to Deuteronomy. They rejected the oral tradition that the Pharisees believed in. They rejected any sense of God's sovereignty in life. So their emphasis was on free will. What really determines our lives is what we choose to do, not what God is actively doing. The Sadducees were also rationalists. They only believed what they could see or sense with their senses or figure out with their own minds. And so we see here they didn't believe in the resurrection. And then uh, it's added to what Paul says, or excuse me, what Luke describes in Acts 23, verse 8, where he says this. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But in contrast, the Pharisees acknowledge these all. The Pharisees didn't believe in the spiritual world. No spirits, no demons, no angels, and no afterlife. All that really matters is this world. And because they had political power and they had affluence, they were wealthy, you can imagine that they were not advocates for change. They wanted to maintain the status quo because they were comfortable. They were highly invested in maintaining the status quo. Much like a lot of us in America today, we're pragmatists, we're utilitarians. What works is what's important. And because we're fairly affluent, certainly compared to the rest of the world, we don't necessarily want a lot of change. We just want our lives to be comfortable in America. 
God is useful in our lives as long as he helps us maintain our comfortable lifestyle, but we don't want him shaking up our lives too much. Lord, stay kind of a little bit off the throne, you know, just close by in case I need you at some point. So Jesus shows up. And he shakes up the Sadducee system, right? (laughs) And they don't like it. He's causing waves in their world, and so they decide they'd better step in and discredit Jesus along with these other groups as well. And so they use their scriptures to attempt to do though that. They refer to Deuteronomy 25.5, the Leveret Law. This was a law that was designed if, if a widow had no children and, she, and her hus, husband has died, now his brother should have children by her for her, his brother's line so that that line can continue. The purpose of this was that it was designed to maintain justice and avoid poverty because a widow, if she had no children, she couldn't maintain her land. She would lose everything. So it was meant to protect the widow and the family line and the property of the deceased Israelite because the brothers to have children in his brother's name. Otherwise, they'll lose everything. But the Sadducees, you know, they think they're so clever, so they come up with this hypothetical story about this woman who's had seven husbands, which um, I don't know why guys would keep marrying a woman like that, right? <laughs> Makes you kind of wonder. This hypothetical story that had probably been used against the Pharisees to make them look silly because they believed in the resurrection and they also believed that that people were married in heaven. People are married in heaven. That's what the Pharisees believe. So they're using this story now on Jesus to make him look silly as well. But as we see, it doesn't work, does it? <laughs> Jesus is way beyond them. It's interesting to me as I think about my own life, it's too often when I feel Jesus stepping into my life. I think we do this a lot and, and beginning to shake it up and move us in a new direction and shake up our lives in some significant ways, uh, wanting to be Lord of everything, not just part of our lives. We're too often like the Sadducees. We resist. We want him to stay in his place. <laughs> Don't shake up my life too much. I want to run my own life, but, you know, hang around in case I need you. That's the Sadducees. So Jesus confronts their foolishness. Verse 24 through 27. He begins this way. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're mistaken? That you don't understand the Scriptures nor the power of God. In verse 27, he uses the same word in Greek for mistaken. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Some translations say wrong or in error. But that word for mistaken or an error is the word in Greek, planao, to wander. It's where we get our word in English, planet. Because the ancients looked up at the sky and they saw all these stars are fixed, but there's these weird lights that kind of wander. They have some kind of pattern, but they wander in their own way. And that's planao, that's planets. And Jesus says that's what the Sadducees are like. They are wanderers. They've wandered away from the truth and they're wandering in a wrong direction. They are very far off course. They are lost. Jesus says there's two things they're missing. That's how they ended up there. It says they don't understand. 
either the scriptures or the power of God. They don't understand God's revelation and what he truly says about who God is and who we are and about life and about the resurrection. And they don't understand God's active hand, his power at work in our lives today. Their eyes are blind. They can't see. It's like they've got cataracts and things have gotten blurrier and blurrier and they don't even realize it. And they're getting further and further away from understanding truth because they haven't embraced God's truth. He's trying to give them new glasses, but they won't put them on. When we refuse to submit to God's truth and see how he's working in the world, it begins to affect our behavior and we begin wandering in our behavior. We wander from God. So I think Jesus is rebuking the Sadducees for three things in particular that are missing in their lives. They're totally missing because they're blinded. They've, their eyes are blurry. They're not seeing truth. And they're wandering off. And I think these three things are worth us considering whether they're part of our lives too. Number one, I think they're missing the living presence of God in their lives. The living presence of God in their lives. Because our five senses, God's given us five senses to understand this world and to pick up things in this world. But because our five senses don't readily pick up God's activity. God is spirit. He's involved in the spirit world. So if we're materialists, it's easy to ignore God's presence and the fact he's active in every aspect of our lives. But as Jesus says, the scriptures speak differently. The scriptures teach us that God is active in every, every bit of our lives. I want to read a couple passages that reflect that. One Old Testament, one New I want to read part of Psalm 139, that beautiful psalm that describes God's hand on every aspect of our lives. Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. And that's a figure of speech saying, you know, you know everywhere I go. It doesn't matter where I am, you're there. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and you're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. He says, my life, my actions, my thoughts, my words, even before I speak them, my thoughts, before I think them, Lord, you know them. You're aware of them. You're intimately involved in every aspect of my life. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. And then verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were, were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. He's saying that everything about my life, every action, everything that happens in my life, you're intimately involved with. You're there. Jesus said similar things when over in Luke chapter 12, as he describes God's intimate care of us. Verse six and seven are not five sparrows sold for two cents. Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many 
sparrows. The very hairs of our head are numbered. God, every time you lose a new hair, God recalculates, recalculates, recalculates. See, does God really care that much about how much hair you have? Well, apparently not. I don't know. But um, no, what he cares about and what the, the point of that passage is Jesus is saying, God knows every little thing about you. He's intimately acquainted with all your ways. There's not a breath you take that God doesn't allow your entire pulmonary system to work. Every heartbeat God is intimately involved with. You've laid your hand on me, the psalmist says. If God ever took his hand off for a second, we would be obliterated. Do you understand how intimately God is involved in every detail of your life? And the Sadducees have left him out, but he's intimately involved. And so faith, see, faith is using your imagination to see the reality of what the scriptures say. It's believing that it's true, even though you can't sense God's presence with your senses all the time. It's believing that God is intimately involved in my life now, but the Sadducees are missing it. And so the question for us is, are we? I I could use many illustrations, but let me just give one for us to consider. The current election cycle. I see so many of us as believers that are really nervous and scared about this. We're afraid of what's going to happen. And if so-and-so gets elected or if this happens or that. But if we really believe God is sovereign and he's intimately involved in everything, then we have to understand that God is in control. He is in control of elections. He is in control of kings and rulers. He is working out his plan. He is controlling nations for his purposes. Proverbs 21, verse 1, says this. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. You see, God's working out a plan that may appear contradictory to what his kingdom is all about. But we have to trust that he's bigger than all that and he is working out things for his purposes. We need to, unlike the Sadducees, believe in the living presence of God in every detail of our lives. The Sadducees are missing it. Secondly, I believe the Sadducees are missing God's power over death. They just see death as the end of existence. When you die, it's over. You stop existing. They don't see God's power at work now. So how in the world would they understand God's power at work after death? So they think they're so clever in mocking the Pharisees view of heaven. So Jesus responds twofold to this missing the power of God over death. He says, first of all, you have a wrong view of heaven, Sadducees, (laughs) a totally wrong view of heaven. Notice what he says. He says, when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He says, marriage will not be part of heaven. Marriage will not be part of heaven. Now, I know as we think about heaven, we try to figure out what what is it going to be like? There's a couple of things we struggle with, right? One is, how much will it be like this world? Continuity. And how much will it be unlike this world, discontinuity? 
What will be what will heaven be like? And Jesus says here, he says, well, part of the discontinuity is that there won't be marriage in heaven. Contrary to what the Pharisees taught. We'll be like the angels. We'll be spiritual beings with transformed bodies. Now, Jesus doesn't explain what this means, that there won't be marriage. And as some have said to me, well, heaven doesn't sound that attractive because I can't imagine not being close to my spouse. You know, I, I, I love them so much. They're, I don't want heaven without them. I can't imagine that. We're so close. And I find many Christians actually fear heaven or don't desire it, don't long for heaven in the way that the scriptures tell us we should. And let me just say a couple things about how I understand it. Again, this is my own construct. It's not explained this way in the scriptures. Jesus doesn't explain it. But here's how I understand it. We are made for relationship, relationship with God and relationship with one another. And God has given us the gift of marriage on earth that's meant to be the closest relationship we can experience on earth, where we become one with someone else emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and physically. And that's a taste of our intimacy with God, and it's a taste of what God wants for us in heaven, real close relationships. That is when marriage is working well. I realize marriage is often difficult and painful because we live in a fallen world. And what keeps us from having really, really wonderful relationships, not just with our spouse, but with others as well? Mainly two things, I think. One is sin. We're selfish. And when you try to get close to someone, we end up hurting each other and we get offended. And we, you know, sin messes up our relationships on earth. And the other thing is time, right? It's like, wow, I would love to get to know that person, but I really don't have time. But what will heaven be like? No sin, no pain, no sorrow, no conflict, no struggle. Relationships will be perfectly loving. And we'll have all the time in the world. In fact, all the time out of the world. (laughs) We'll have an eternity to build relationships with one another. So, I think we will still have incredible closeness with our spouses. In fact, far deeper and more profound than we experience on earth. But we won't need an exclusive covenant relationship with our spouses because God also wants us to have incredibly close, non-sexual, intimate relationships with many other people. We have an eternity to be close to many people. And that's why we don't need marriage Yeah, you're going to be even closer to your spouse in a good way, in the best way, because love will be perfect. But you'll also have that kind of closeness, friendships with many, many others, far deeper than anything you've experienced on earth. Our relationships there will transcend the very best marriage on earth by far. And we we don't have time to explain everything about heaven, what the Bible says. But let me say a couple things. Some of you, I know, as introverts are sitting out there going, man, that many relationships? (laughs) (laughs) But notice that heaven is described as a new heavens and a new earth. I think we'll be on an earth that is transformed. It will be glorious. All the best parts of, of this earth and of nature will be there. And if you introverts need some time to go, hang out, you'll have plenty of eternity to do that. And it will be glorious. I think the the smallest flower in heaven will be more glorious than the sawtooths here. 
It'll be incredible. It'll be marvelous. And notice, heaven is also described as a city coming down out of heaven. And it's the new Jerusalem. And we will be dwelling together. And I don't know about you, but big cities, I don't, I've lived in them. I don't really like them that well. Why? Because there's crime, there's conflict, there's traffic, there's all those things. But imagine living together where love is perfect and there's no conflict and no traffic. (laughs) And it'll be awesome and wonderful. That's why it's described as the city, perfect relationships. So heaven, uh, I just hope you get a vision for how incredibly wonderful heaven will be. And that you have a desire for heaven because the Sadducees had no desire for heaven and they missed it. And we're created to long for heaven knowing that this earth can never provide what we were built for. And the more we long for heaven, the more free we are to live freely for God in this earth. What, what does this mean for relationships now on earth? Well, there's a lot I could say, but let me just speak specifically to singles and widows, those who can't have children, those who struggle with same-sex desires, anyone who isn't able to live out the American dream of a spouse and 2.4 kids. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom is now in part, right? And so we're called in the scriptures to develop relationships within the body of Christ that actually transcend marriage. That we can begin living out those heavenly relationships even now. And the scriptures reflect this. David and Jonathan had this incredible close relationship. And David said, oh, your love is greater than that of women. There was nothing erotic about that, brothers and sisters. Their relationship just had that heavenly taste of closeness and friendship that we are meant to have as believers. And then in the New Testament, you see Jesus when his mother and brothers came to see him and they said, hey, your family's here. He said, no, this is my family. The disciples, the body of Christ. There is a place now where we can have deeper relationships than our family relationships in the body of Christ even now. And in Luke 18, verse 28 and following, Jesus puts it this way. Peter said, behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much when in this life and in the age to come eternal life. See, Jesus is saying the kingdom is now. And so deeper relationships ought to be happening now. Yeah, we we don't have time for all of it, but we can go much deeper. And therefore, singles and widows and others do not have to miss out ultimately on the kind of closeness that God designed us for. And so we in the church need to especially encourage those who don't have a typical family relationship. Wesley Hill, in his book, Spiritual Friendship, he's a Christian struggling with same-sex desires who's chosen celibacy, but looking for closeness, close relationships in the body of Christ since he can't fulfill his desires. He says this, we singles 
widows, etc., need people who know what time our plane lands, who will worry about us when we don't show up at the time we said we would. We need people who can, we can call and tell about that funny thing that happened in the hallway after class. We need the assurance that, come hell or high water, a few people will stay with us, loving us in spite of our faults and caring for us when we're down. More than that, we need people for whom we can care. As another single friend of mine put it recently, you want to be able to make soup for friends who are sick, not just have someone who will make soup for you when you're sick. (laughs) In the absence of mutually recognized commitments, it's not always clear that that kind of reciprocity is welcome. What I want to say to us, brothers and sisters, is we don't have to be missing out on closeness, spiritual closeness here. And then Jesus challenges the Sadducees and says, you have a wrong view of the scriptures. He quotes Exodus chapter three, where he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. (laughs) You miss it. God is powerful. He's involved in life right now. The resurrection is true. You're missing out when you live just for this world. And then third, Jesus rebukes the Sadducees for missing out on God's plan for redemption. When he quotes Exodus 3, I think he's saying more than just God's the God of the living. You know, Abraham, Isaac, you know, they're living in heaven somewhere. And I think he's saying more than that. Because what is Exodus 3? It's the place where Israel had been in captivity in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And in those 400 years, they hadn't heard from God. And Exodus 3 at the burning bush is where God shows up and he begins the redemption process to free his people from slavery in Egypt. I believe Jesus quotes that because he's saying there's been 400 years of silence between the Old Testament to the New Testament period. And he's saying God is showing up, Sadducees, right in front of your face. I'm here. And I'm beginning my plan of redemption. I'm about to go to the cross. I'm about to set you free. And Sadducees, because you're so blind and you're so concerned about finding life here on earth, you're missing it. God's plan of redemption has begun. They're living as though God doesn't really care, isn't involved. But God has shown up to begin his plan of redemption and they're missing it. This passage is a challenge to us who live a comfortable life in America today. Are we like the Sadducees, acting like God really isn't involved in our daily lives, who don't really believe in the resurrection or it's just some kind of vague thing out there and we're not sure how to think about it? You see, since Jesus came, he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again. He conquered death forever. He lives today as a living Savior and Lord He's been given all authority on heaven and earth. He has power over life and death. And our hope in the resurrection is critical for us as believers today. You see, it's central for us to put our hope there, not in this life, but in the life to come. Because that's central to living in the kingdom of God now. If you truly believe your hope is in heaven, that the resurrection will happen someday for you, You can give your life away now. You can live in light of the cross. You can follow in Jesus' footsteps and give your life away because you know the real reward 
is yet to come. Because one day we'll see him face to face. And all we really long for in our hearts will finally come true. I want to close with reading kind of extended quote, but from my friend Brian Morgan, pastor in California, <clears throat> the challenges of some of our thinking. I felt like I couldn't say it better than he did. Do we really believe in the resurrection? If we do, we will not regard singleness as a second class state but it's a sacred calling that's higher than marriage. Single people are already living out their total devotion to Christ as his bride. We regard widows in the same light as women we should feel privileged to learn from. And if we really believe in the resurrection, we'll regard in a different light couples who cannot have children. We'll see their tears of barrenness as painful, yes, but also as the holy gateway to fertility. For as Isaiah predicted, the sons of the barren and desolate shall be more numerous than the sons of the married woman and will rejoice in anticipation that through their pain, many, many spiritual children, too numerous to count, will be born so that every ounce of the pain is exponentially increasing the capacity for joy. Do we really believe in the resurrection? There is much I could say. But let me end with this. The resurrection reframes our life both while we're here on earth and after we die. Those of you who have lost precious loved ones know that their death makes heaven more precious. While you live in the ache of reunion, you can almost hear them singing in the wind as a holy oboe playing in the air. The resurrection shapes our life. Then after we die, it's hardly over. God is going to continue to do countless things to love us, things we could not begin to comprehend in our lifetime. Do we believe in the resurrection and do we live our lives in light of it? Let's pray. Praise you, Lord, that you conquered death, that you went to the cross and took the penalty of death for every single one of us. And then when you rose again, you proved that you had power, absolute power to conquer death forever. And therefore, because of your death and resurrection, we have hope that we will live eternally with you, that heaven will be glorious, marvelous. We'll see you face to face and be transformed and we will live in a new heavens and a new earth and we will live in incredible unity with one another.